0: Hello and welcome back to Resolve the podcast. But I am with an incredible lady and I'm just going to get you to guess who it is before I introduce. Well, why would I do that? Nobody even knows what I'm talking about or who or who I am or who who I would be talking about in this way. But I am with with Katie Albert who used to be Katie Tile. So now if you want to guess it's going to be none <laughs> other than my oldest sister. Hello, Katie. Hi, Noah. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this topic. This is one that's very close to my heart.
0: Yes, we're going to be talking about how to get along with siblings. And I thought it would be very fun to do that with (laughs) Katie Tile, all come together. But Katie is also involved in the field of mental health. So I would love to hear a little bit about. Katie, what you do and how you spend your time in this field.
1: Okay. So I do a number of different things. Um, I have a clinical counseling practice at a place called the Red Path Center, where I specialize in individuals and families who are neurodiverse, more specifically, uh, autism spectrum disorders and ADHD. So so uh, children and youth who are struggling with their mental health, who also have comorbid developmental or cognitive um, concerns. So I work with a lot of kids and youth who have anxiety, depression, OCD, um, difficulties with executive functioning, who are having social challenges. And then I also have a small parent coaching practice that is more brief solution-focused virtual coaching for parents, mostly of younger kids, where I can help parents with things like toileting, feeding, tantrums, meltdown, separation, anxiety, all the fun stuff. And finally, I also do speaking and training for different types of professionals, teachers, administration of schools, residential, or a group home setting, like supporting staff in those settings. Um, so a nice kind of variety of different things
0: what's the most meaningful part of of the work that you do
1: it's a great question i think for me what feels the most meaningful is when i can help clients make real change in their lives and um, i mean I love the connection with people i love talking to them i love building relationships i try to make my sessions really fun i try to be really non-judgmental but when I get feedback from people that like their lives are really changing and they're able to do things that allow them to have better, more meaningful lives, that feels very meaningful to me.
0: Yeah, How do you do that with, with the younger population? So I work mostly with people that have, I would say a lot more agency over their decisions. And so the therapy, when people come in, they're really ready to make changes, even though it's really hard, no matter what you do to make changes. But you work with younger people where maybe they don't even want to be there or you're working with their parents to help them. So how, how do you navigate that?
1: So it's actually something that I have some really firm ways that I work with families and I'm sort of unwilling to be flexible about. <laughs> I do not treat kids without their parents. I don't see kids for counseling unless their parents are involved pretty much in every session. With a lot of my youths, I, the youth that I work with, I will start off with their parents with obviously with the permission of the youth. In some circumstances, um, you know, a, a youth who's very motivated and wants to do things on their own, sometimes the family's not involved. but I feel so strongly with children that you cannot, you cannot support a child with anxiety or executive functioning challenges, or social skills issues, or any of these things, if their parents are not really on board. And my the way that I work with families is I really, in my sessions, try to create a common language and way of conceptualizing the child's challenges. Um, we have action items every single week. And I use a lot of, so I didn't mention, I, I'm a I'm a a board certified behavior analyst, but I'm also, um, I use a lot of psychotherapeutic modalities as well. And I'm hoping to become a part of the the college here in Ontario soon, but um, I use a lot of action items and um, I'm trying to get families to change the way they do things and interrupt cycles at home and create different opportunities at home and have different conversations at home. And I look at my office and my therapy sessions as being a place to create that common language and model the types of conversations and actions that need to, to become part of the new family dynamic and patterns. And that's how I navigate like what you're saying, how it's it's so hard to just, you know, have a child go see a therapist for an hour, go back to their regular environment and expect them to make any changes. They, they simply can't, especially young kids.
0: So is it like if somebody imagining that there's running, there's like seven, there's like five taps, let's say each person in the family has a, has a sink. And the problem is, in the house is that the water, the house is flooding from all the water coming out of each sink. So if you were to just help the child fix up their sink and figure out why it's not turning off, there would still be the other people in the family to be involved with. And so you have to work with everybody or else you don't solve the problem. I don't even know if that makes sense as an analogy, but I'm always looking for metaphors.
1: I mean that family systems therapy approach, right? That everybody in the family plays a role, especially with anxiety. There's a lot of accommodation of anxiety and a lot of facilitation of avoidance. Um, And I find that unless those patterns can be broken, the child really cannot learn to manage their anxiety better. So a lot of anxiety treatment is focused on teaching children to calm down and teaching deep breathing and teaching all of these things. And it's funny because we're going to talk about values today. I'm much more focused on helping the family to understand the process of anxiety versus being stuck in the content. What is the child anxious about? The, the content changes all the time. Understanding the process of how anxiety functions within the family Um and doing a lot of externalizing and teaching the parent to walk their child through that, helping the child to get in touch with what they're missing out on and what, whether it's anxiety, whether it's anger, whatever the feeling is that's interrupting, what would, what would you be doing with your life if this feeling wasn't like so overwhelming to you and bossing you around so much? And, um, and then working with parents to see how they need to change their response to anxiety or anger or any of these feelings when it shows up to help the child make different choices. So, yeah, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't work with parents on breaking the pattern of accommodation and avoidance, uh, it's really, really difficult for children to to um, to stop those patterns on their own. Even for you, even for adults, it's really hard.
0: But that's why I find it so frustrating, actually, to work with with younger populations sometimes because, well, I mean, I work with, the youngest I work with is about 13 years old, but I imagine even younger. I I have a hard time working. It's, hard, it's so hard to change as it is just one person and by themselves. And so imagining working with a whole family system, it, it just seems overwhelming. But maybe what you're saying is that even though it might seem like it's more work on another level, it might be less because it's less burden on one person. Particularly everybody does stuff together.
1: Absolutely. I also think a piece that I find so amazing about working with children and families is that there is so much that parents can do, even if their child is not on board to help them make gains. And so um, if you have parents who are really willing to do the work, the child can do incredible. And because children, parents still have a lot of control over their child's environment. They can say, no, I won't do that. Right. Or, or I'm going to respond differently. And the child doesn't have to make any good choices (laughs) and they don't have to change anything. If the parent changes things, um, then it can, it can, there is actually so much more we can do because there's an adult who hopefully is on board and well-regulated and, and motivated to, to help their child and to do things differently. And I also find, you know, I do like in my office, we do a lot of exposure stuff and a lot of practice. And, um, and I, I, I I really find with kids, we can just have a lot more control and not trying to control the child, but we can, we can impact the environment in in much more significant ways, whereas with adults and olds or teenagers, there's very little we can do. Right, we don't have nearly as much control over um, over the, the child's life, and and so, so in some ways, I think it's easier. But yes, I know a lot of people who find working with children very frustrating.
0: What and there's a lot of patience that must be developed there. Definitely. Is there a part of it, so you're, you're not really, sometimes you're not really working directly with the children themselves. What would you yeah. say to people that maybe look at the behaviorism part as a bit mechanical or manipulative almost? It's like you're doing things behind the scenes. T- tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that. How would, how so, would you respond to that? That's a
1: great question. So I would say actually don't do anything behind the scenes. Pa- oh. Children are very aware. And even if they don't like what I have to say, like I might say, you are going to hate what I'm going to tell your mom to do right now. You're not going to like, because you know what? I'm going to tell your mom you have to do. I'm going to tell your mom that next time you go on a play date, that she shouldn't ask your friend dad to lock the dog in the backyard. And that's going to feel really hard for you. But you know what? If we can't go, wouldn't it stink if we couldn't go on play dates because with friends that we really like because they have dogs? Like We need to learn. Anxiety doesn't want you to be around dogs. but that's really going to get in the way of having fun. So even if you don't like it, this is what I'm going to tell your mom and dad you got to do, right? Or I'll say, you know, meeting our commitments is so important. Even if we get angry, even if we get anxious, even if our body feels bad. And so I think that if commitments are not met, that there shouldn't be any screen time allowed. And I will say these things in front of kids. And sometimes sometimes they don't like it. (laughs) And that's okay. And I'm perfectly fine with clients. I really, really try to have a balance of tough love, but also being super fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And the truth is, is I'm really able to win most children over by being very honest. And, and, and kids who say, I don't want to see you. And I don't want to do this. say, okay, well, I'm going to work with your parents. And if you choose to be in this session, that's wonderful. And if you don't want to, you don't have to.
0: So it's very straightforward. It seems like there's a lot of consent. It's not It's not. Now, of course, in general, I find behavioral principles to be super valuable to learn about from the general population, because whether or not we're trying whatever behaviors we're trying to change, there's reasons why we do them. There's reasons why they're not helpful. There's reasons why they are helpful and having a broader perspective on the environment around us and how we engage with it is really important. So it's not it's not really a behind the scenes type of thing. It's very explicit that yeah. of what you're doing and why, and why it would be helpful and why it's valuable.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So bringing this conversation, because I think that the two of us, Katie, we're both values focused therapists. And I think what that means for the most part is that for me, at least there's two things that, that matter when I think about values. And I want you to define it for us in a second. The first thing is that it, it leads the way. So you can always know, Sometimes it's hard to feel the right way about anything, to think the right way about anything, to have the right intention. But there's a bottom line about what's acceptable and what's not. It's like, no matter what, I'm not going to do these things. Basically, no matter what, I'm not going to do these things and no matter what, I'm going to do other things. So no matter what, I'm not going to punch a friend. I'm not going to punch my parents. I'm not going to punch my siblings. I'm not going to do it. So I might feel a whole range of emotions That are telling me something, but I'm not going to do what I know I shouldn't do. And at the same time, I'm going to do the things that I know I need to do even when I don't want to. And so I look at it like it's really good for a compass of sort of guiding where we want to go. And a lot of people are lost when any decision in the moment can come up and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, I don't know how to act in this moment. It might not be always a bad behavior or a good behavior, but it's just I don't know where I'm going and I don't know what I want to do. And I find that people that are guided with values just make better decisions, even if the decisions aren't between two a bad decision and a good decision, but just how to navigate life. And so just having values is really important. So what do values mean?
1: So I a lot of the work that I do is very um, based in ACT, acceptance, and commitment therapy, which funnily enough is actually based on behavior analytic principles, mainly relational um, um, relational frame theory, which is understanding the connections we make between language, um, our own internal language and stimuli environment in the environment, in our behaviors. Um, so in a lot of my ACT training, I've gotten some great um, ways to think about values. Russ Harris often defines it as How do we want to treat ourselves and how do we want to treat others? How do we want to show up and who do we want to be in the situations that come up in our lives, along with all the thoughts and feelings that we have? And those are our values. Um, and, And it's really important to distinguish those from outcomes or achievements. You know, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a Lawyer. I want to um, be a parent. Right. Those are outcomes. But thinking about, um, you know, and a value could be family. A value could be kindness. A value could be helping others. So if you're applying to medical school or trying to have a child, you're living by your values, whether or not you get in, whether or not you actually have one. And it's really thinking. Of, and it's it's thinking about the kind of life you want to live and how you want to treat people and yourself.
0: So there are things that we can control and and things that we can't. We can't always control, let's say, how we're feeling about something, what thoughts are running through our minds in a particular situation, whether we meet our goals, which are outcome-oriented or not. But one thing that maybe we have the most control about is the values that we bring to our life and how we choose to live based on whatever life situations we're in.
1: Exactly. And and really being aware of those values as guiding principles in, in terms of the action that you take is really clarifying when you're trying to make decisions. Because, you know, when you're making decisions based on just feelings and emotions, which are impermanent and constantly changing, um, it can be easy to lose your way because you could feel one thing one day and feel another thing another day so to learn to listen to our feelings and accept our feelings and make room for our feelings which i do with with kids a lot and with parents a lot there's so many conflicting feelings in parenting but having those principles of what what do i really want for myself what do i really want for my family being the thing that grounds us when we have big emotions and i even work with kids as young as even 9 or 8 or 9 on what kind of kid do you wanna be when your anger shows up? Who do you wanna be, right? And I think of emotional regulation actually as being the ability to remember and consider your values when you have a big feeling. And I, we could talk about that with really, really young kids. Like, oh, you're so angry. Oh, you're jealous, right? And that's okay. It's okay to have that feeling. What kind of kid do you want to be when you're jealous? It's so powerful. And I think a lot of parents are very focused day to day on their children's sort of immediate comfort and happiness. And and sometimes when we forget about values, what kind of kids are we trying to raise versus just like, how do I keep everybody happy and calm and surviving? Which sometimes we have to do in moments. It can be really, really useful because a lot of the time living by our values is difficult and uncomfortable. So unless we really know what they are, it's really hard for us to stay motivated to do the things that that uh, bring us closer to our values when they're hard.
0: So there's sort of a broad values focus or exploration. You can go through, let's say, family and within family, what are the guiding principles that you want to be the sort of constitution of your family life, relationships brought more broadly speaking, your work, friendships, jobs? all sorts of domains you can really clarify for yourself in a, in a sober moment, in a moment of exploration when you're not emotionally charged. What, what, how do I want to live? What, what matters? I think the way that I've heard it described is that it's usually a one word answer, a value. Mm -hmm. It's kindness, compassion, growth, patience, um, patience.
1: perseverance.
0: And then, but those are need to be reflected sometimes in very specific goals. Like let's say, Someone who has anger issues that are coming up a lot, they want to exercise patience. And so then they have to plan almost in advance to know what's going to trigger me and when am I going to be flared up with this angry emotion and how am I going to embody the value of patience in that moment? That's a very specific one where maybe I learn to walk away from a situation or not call someone 14 times when they didn't answer me or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So,
0: so it's not really a theory. It sounds theoretical and sort of a platitude. I'm going to live with these values. Um, but then it it's about how you apply it. And I'm wondering how you handle dealing with values in emotionally charged situations.
1: So it's funny that you say kind of planning ahead. So one of the skills that I teach parents and kids a lot and youth um, and young adults, especially young adults in university or who are just transitioning um, into post-secondary education. We plan for, okay, how are you going to feel during midterms? What feelings are going to come up? What thoughts are you going to have? And getting in touch with what values you want to make choices by and live by in that moment and making a plan because when people who struggle with self-regulation and executive functioning difficulties, part of the problem is that they react without checking in with their brain, right? Like the prefrontal cortex shuts down when we're acutely stressed or highly emotional. But if you've done all that conversation, like, and I'll say this to really even young kids, like, oh, your body was moving so fast that it didn't even ask your brain. It didn't even talk to your brain about what's important to you. And so then you made this mistake. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. Let's have the conversation before so that next time when your body gets really stressed out or you're having this really big feeling, you've already had the conversation with your brain and it'll be easier to make a good choice. And then we'll talk about, okay, what should we plan to get really jealous about this week? What should we plan to get really angry about this week? And we'll make a list. And it would say, okay, what would it look like if you were able to be patient when you got angry? What would it look like if you were able to... Uh, persevere when you just felt like something was so, so hard. And yeah, so planning ahead is a really important way to help kids to be able to do this. And one thing that I actually do with kids too, is I teach their parents to reward value-based behavior. So I'll often use a token economy. I am a behavior therapist as after all, meaning like they have a jar of like, towards move. So every time they make it to a move towards their values, and this is also a Russ Harris thing, the choice point, I simplify it. They get to put a marble in the jar. When they get 10, they get an ice cream party or they get to order a new puppet, or whatever it is. So, and I teach the parent when they're giving the marble to say, you were feeling X, but you remembered that you want to be X. And so you decided to X bringing language, bringing that the that internal language, in into their environment, so they can externalize it. And a lot of the time, kids are already doing so many great things, and no one notices. Um, we only notice when they're really losing it. So even to be able to point out their wins to them is so important. Or even just an example of a, a person, um, a young adult that I work with with um, relationship OCD and also like health um, related OCD, who you know will have the urge to call a you know uh, someone that he's interested in or a friend 15 times um, or send a text and then get a thought about how it was weird or not funny and then feel the need to ask for reassurance a million times about or apologize for the text he sent or whatever it was. Um, so again, planning for for the feelings that OCD brings up and connecting to, the values like how do you want ocd to be the boss of your life or are there other things you want to be driving your life and what would that look like if you were living by your values
0: the impulsivity i think the problem with living in your emotions is that it's not stable or consistent and it's too much dependent on what comes up in that moment we don't for example ever decide oh if i today i'm going to well, hopefully not today. I'm going to like smash a car. Um, cause I feel like it. And then, you know, the next day I'm not, cause I don't feel like it. We, 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 we realize in extreme situations that there are just things we don't do. There are just things that we don't do, but in an everyday sense, there's lots of times that we just act from an impulsive place. Oh, today, especially with students today, I don't really feel like working, you know, or today, I don't feel like, um, talking to this person that I made an agreement to speak to, or, all sorts of things that are just very unstable uh, a lot of people have a hard time with following through with routines because they consult with their feelings and in their in their thoughts in the moment I do this mm-hmm. all the time for example with people that are having trouble getting up in the morning I say this is a really good way to test out this whole thing we've been talking about you have a values that you that you want to be punctual in some way when you wake up in the morning you want to have and you have an aim a goal to represent that by getting up at eight. A.M., and you want to do that on the first alarm every morning. But the problem is, is that when you wake up in the morning, so you've decided that in a clear, let's say, in the sober state or in the DBT world, the wise mind has decided or the values Mm -hmm. brain has decided, I'm going to get up at eight, and that's very clear. And you've taken into account your desires, feelings, what you really want to, how you want to live your life. And then you wake up in the morning, and oh, your brain says no, I. I never said anything like that. I'm just tired. And let's go back to bed. I don't feel like doing that. So you're just following what is going to pass in five minutes. So I have this whole thing where I say, put your phone far away from your bed, let it go off. No consultations with your brain in the moment. Do not, I mean, your brain can say whatever it wants. You can feel whatever you want, but those pieces of information, sometimes you want to take them into consideration of course. And sometimes, most of the time you don't. So, When you're deciding to get up, you don't decide in the morning when you're charged, let's say with emotional tiredness. You've decided already when you're going to wake up and that was yesterday. And so you really acknowledge but disregard what your desires are telling you to do and you follow through with what matters. And you do that 40, 50, 60, 70 times in a row. It doesn't always get easier, but you become someone who you can rely on. You become somebody that you can know that you don't follow just the storm all the time. Otherwise it must be so exhausting every day to just not know how am I going to be today? Today, I'm going to let anger ruin my life and then tomorrow I'm going to be fine. And it just, it's exhausting.
1: Yeah, I think, I think too. And this is something that I have thought a lot about and the way that mental health becomes part of our identity. Sometimes our mental health issues or our physical illness becomes part of our identity can be a really big barrier to doing the things that you just talked about. Um, we see ourselves as being depressed or anxious or unreliable, or I have ADHD, this is who I am. And I think that in some ways, the deep stigmatization of mental health issues, which is overall such a positive thing that of course I support 100%. Um, I think it's sort of the pendulum has swung a bit far. Uh, and I see a lot of youth who truly identify with their anxiety and depression. And this can be the same thing also with like with and and, and we it's it's not that it's good or bad necessarily, but it's how does it function and is it helpful or not helpful? Um, you know, for example, if you identify as being on the autism spectrum and then that becomes a huge part of our identity, in what situations is that helpful? and what situations is that unhelpful? If you say, I have autism, therefore I can never learn to do this. Um, and if that interferes with a value that's really important to you, well, that's probably unhelpful in that specific situation. If you say, you know, I, I'm just too depressed. Like I just, I'm depressed. That's why this is happening. I, I You know, and everybody has to accommodate me and I shouldn't have to hand in my assignments and I should get this, this and this at work. So it's like where does that lot where is that line when the, the rights of people with mental health issues and how, how real and serious it is, when should we accommodate, when should we not accommodate? like these are things that I'm constantly working on with parents and with, with youth specifically of is this getting in the way of the kind of life you want to have, the way you think about your anxiety and depression or your diagnosis, or is it helping? If it leads to self-compassion in moments, that's wonderful. But if it leads to hopelessness or uh, a lack of um, accountability, it's not helpful. So really, and values is is at the other side of all of that. Because at the end of the day, one of the ways that I'm able to interact with people in a non-judgmental way is to recognize myself and to say to them, your values are your own. I'm not here to tell you what your values are. I'm just here to help you. Live by those, or learn the skills you need so that you can, you can better have a more meaningful life. So, you know, it's it really it, it really helps to to interact in that way where it's the person's values that we're working on, not mine as the therapist. And then, you know, I I love something. It's a, it's something that I learned when I was in my DDT course about being able to you know when you say the word should to be able to say should in order to what. Right. So if you say I should be able to get you if I say someone you should be able to get out of bed in the morning, that might come across as critical. But if we bring it into values, if you want to get your degree, if you want to be a if you if you want to be a reliable parent, then you should get out of bed in the morning. You're the one who wants to be a reliable parent. You're the one who wants to get your degree. So then you probably should do this. Right. No matter how depressed you feel, no matter how anxious you feel.
0: Um, I have a lot of concerns about the topic that you you're bringing up. I always try to ask clients, where's your agency and where's your choice? So for example, cause that's where values really, that's the sweet spot of values. For example, if a, if a student says to me, I have ADHD or I have OCD, I can't do this or I can't do that. It's too simplistic at times because it's just, it's latching. It's, it's a real victim mentality that I get concerned about. I always say, and so, so much empathy towards the struggle with OCD and ADHD. And we know, of course, we can get into complex biological and environmental factors that make it much less likely or much more difficult to do things that other people might not have so much difficulty with. There's a way Absolutely. to do this to completely understand what they're going through, but also ask them fundamental questions, which is if, for example, you tomorrow, no matter what, how much you cared about your, this, you could not grow a foot. So there are physical limitations. Tomorrow, you could not will yourself to grow a foot. But could you get up tomorrow with an alarm? Is that physically possible for you? Is that a possibility in your life? Could you, when you have a desire to ask for reassurance 40 times from somebody? I know how hard that feels it, because in your emotions, the desires feel like they're, they are you and you over-identify with them. So maybe in the moment, it feels like you can't. But I'm asking you, is it theoretically possible for you to not use your hands to send a text message to somebody else? And the answer is, of course, of course, it just doesn't feel like a choice. And what's so empowering about that is that even though, let's say, just for argument's sake, you can't control how strong your body experiences the intrusive thoughts, how strong or how much deficits you have because of mental health conditions, that doesn't mean that there's you're doing everything you possibly can. And that's a very DBT dialectic thing. It's accepting the limitations of your experience and whatever those limitations are. And But part of therapy is being radically honest that, okay, I know that I have a struggle and I know that it's not primarily my fault. But what am I doing to contribute to this by not accessing my values and by staying stuck in the emotional state? And maybe that is the concern with people over-identifying with the disorder. They just say, the OCD made me do this or the ADHD made me do this. And a lot of times I think that that is very disempowering for people.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I see that a lot. And I, I, I also think that exactly what you said about the compassion and the validation and and the validation is so important to really say, I know this is really hard for you. And I know it maybe, and even to say like, it's not even fair that it has to be this hard for you. Like, to really, again, to, to be compassionate about these things that say, but if you accept that this is not something you can have any agency over, what will that mean for your future? And are you willing to accept that? Um, and one of the things, especially like, if we, if we look at, you know, the behavioral um, principles is to be able to meet clients where they're at and say like, what, what are you able to do, right? And let's start there because, you know, when we talk about values versus outcomes, if, we, if you were living by that value, maybe if you can't get to, like, the outcomes and the goals exactly where you'd want to be, what would be a small move towards that, right? In what way are you willing to challenge that? In what way are you will, able to take a baby step so that it's less overwhelming?
0: And how do you balance competing values in the moment? So sometimes people might struggle with indecisiveness because there are two options that aren't great or there are two values. Let's say the value of self-assertiveness, somebody's bothering you, saying things that are really hurtful. And so you wanna be assertive, but also you know that you might say something that was rude or inconsiderate, or you wanna be agreeable too. So you wanna be both assertive and agreeable. So how do you sort of navigate these complex situations where two values are competing with each other in the moment and both have emotional weight and it's not exactly clear what the right decision is?
1: Being able to weigh your values in the moment is a really difficult thing. And it's something that I think that we all struggle with. And sometimes actually in the moment, it's really difficult to do. But what can be really powerful is to reflect on it after the moment, if, if you made the right choice so that you can learn from it the next time. Right. So let's say like you really value being like really, you like to be, you like to be good at things. Like you like to be really good at things. Right. And you like things to be perfect or you like things to be really strong, like in you're working in a group. Right. So you might have the value of, I want to like, I want to do an awesome group project and I want it to be good and I want it to be interesting and I want to get an A. Right. Right. But I also want to be a good group member. Now I have two. And now I'm working with like these total duds who like, you know, are not able to do the amazing, like the type of work that, that, that I myself think is good enough. Now I'm trying to compete. I have two values, being a good group member or my relationship with this person and how I feel about the academic piece of it, about being, you know, putting forth really strong work and doing my best. That could be a really difficult thing to, to competing values to do. And it, it I think it, you know, if you can think about it in a moment where you're not emotional, I'll say to kids, like, what's more important to you, your relationship with that person or being right, or having it done your way? That's a hard choice. You need to take some time to think about it. But again, doing it outside of the moment can be really helpful because in the moment, you know, if someone makes a bad suggestion in your group project or you know they 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 do something sort of half-assed, you might get really angry. But if you've already thought about the fact that you actually want to prioritize your relationship over, you know, the content of that work, then then it's easier to make a good choice in the moment.
0: And it's also sometimes there isn't an objective absolute right answer to take and there isn't it's a give and take between conflicting values and you have to make decisions and sometimes your decision sometimes your value is going to be decisiveness and firmness and so even though maybe the values of are at 51 to 49 i want to speak up about something but i also don't want to disrupt the group's cohesion so yeah maybe if i do it and i'll see the feedback and then i'll decide again There's not always going to be an absolute black and white answer to these questions. But what's really neat is that a lot of times there is, when you define it for yourself, a lot of times, you know, you, people know, it's kind of like the, and this is I think I've mentioned this before. One of my rabbi that I know would would advise people to not listen to the advice of you can't go to bed angry at somebody because it's a terrible Mm -hmm. way to look at the world that, you need to solve the problem while you're in an emotional state. And if you go to bed, God forbid in the morning, someone, they, they, this person's gonna be not there anymore. And it's a really, right. It's you got to take some yeah. space to breathe. Cause values are stable and consistent and emotions are have a lot to offer the world. And sometimes it's very healthy. Sometimes your values are deeply aligned with your emotions. You see your child, you know, I see my, my baby many times a day. And all I want to do, my values are to give love. And all I want to do is kiss and smooch his face. And those things go together with great synergy. So it's really nice. And so what I think we're both getting at here is that values take into account. Values are the, are the king, the king, the leader that looks at all the other pieces, past history, particular needs of the moment, feelings thoughts and says okay let's let's constitute all this information and decide how am i going to live on the bottom line based on all this stuff as opposed to just being another player on the on the field with everybody else that it, it is equal space so it's it's not suppressing and it seems like it's very not empowering it's very empowering because you can't your your values should not be emotional manipulation of my feelings or control no it be, well yeah. it could be in a moment i don't know but mostly that you can't control. So it'd be very hard to, to do that.
1: Right. And that's why I think a lot of the, the things that we do in therapy that are focused around getting in control of your emotions, even a lot of the CBT stuff around reasoning with yourself, sometimes with a lot of people, I don't even go there or do anything around relief, around, you know, getting yourself calm. Sometimes you have to not be calm and just do the right thing, right? Um, but I think... Another thing that that you just made me think about is that emotions are not totally disconnected from our values. Often emotions are actually telling us about our values. The question is, is often we react to emotions in very primitive ways that actually get in the way of our values, right? So for example, if I have the value to be a supportive parent, so this is you know, this is back to the dog example. My daughter, Lily's a bit afraid of dogs. She's quite uncomfortable with them. Right. So when I see her get uncomfortable and scared on a play date, because there's a dog in the room, I have the value of being a supportive, kind, loving parent. And I'm going to have the emotion of like, protect her, fix it, make this all go away, like get a really you know, I might I get might get very anxious myself when I see her anxious. Um, that's telling me about my love for my child. Guilt often tells us about what we care about in love, but drives us to do things that actually get in the way of living by our values. So for example, as a parent, if you feel guilt when you're I'm gonna get back to the dog example for a second. So when I feel that anxiety or I feel that that um, that sense of sadness that she is missing out on the play date or that she's not having fun or not participating properly. I may think that putting the dog in the backyard or saying you don't have to go is being a supportive parent. And that might feel because, you know, when we have the emotion of anxiety, the primitive response to that is get out of this, avoid, fix, get safe, get rid of the danger. But that, that reinforces the anxiety cycle and makes anxiety worse over time. So unless we're really connected to, okay, this is my value, my emotion is really telling me what I care about, but is the way I'm responding to this emotion helping me get towards my values? Um, So I push myself in those situations to say, Lily, I'm here with you. I know the dog really feels, makes you feel really scared, but we're not going to put the dog away. You can sit on my lap until you're ready to go and play with your friends while the dog is here and and accepting that discomfort not trying to get rid of my emotion allowing it to be there allowing it to tell me that i really care about my daughter and i want her to be safe and i want her to be successful but i need to be very aware of that value of i also want my daughter to be resilient and to learn that when anxiety shows up for her that she can handle it and that she's strong so like my emotion tells me something so important, but then I have to take the next step to say, but how I respond to that emotion is is that bringing me towards or away? Guilt is a huge one with parents too. We experience guilt all the time. Thank God we have guilt or we, we would probably neglect our children. But you know, so when guilt shows up, we could say, this is my love. This is my love for my children. That's a, my value. But if if the way I respond to my guilt is do anything to get rid of it, You know, when my kids say, you know, all my friends have the newest iPhone and I don't and you're the worst ever, and then guilt shows up and I try to get rid of guilt by buying them the latest iPhone, even when we can't afford it, or when we don't really, that's not really what we value. Guilt is there because of love. It's connected to the value. But when we act in ways to get rid of those negative emotions that are telling us of our values, we're often hindering the process of living by our values. Um, I, I don't know if this is it's complicated sense, but, for parents yeah for
0: human, it is. for human beings it's complicated well that's because you're managing yeah. two people um at that point but you, you know the advice for example of listen to your intuition, follow your heart sometimes no absolutely not sometimes really not and I think that idea that your feelings are true or right is not where we're where we want to go we want to go to accepting, allowing, embracing, what is, however you want to define embracing, what is there. But sometimes it's just not leading us to the right decisions. For other species, it could be more simple. Like, you know, dogs respond to the instincts and the desires, and that's kind of the easiest way, way for them to live. And we can try and move them their behaviors around a little bit, but there's a lot less agency. Human beings, it's just really hard because... We, can, we have to sometimes go ag- exactly against our instincts and do the exact opposite in, in DBT or that's opposite action to regulate right. emotion. These are really hard things to do. And I think that our compass and our guide and the hope is that we all can define our values so that we can take the best of all the data of our instinct, emotion, desire, intuition, whatever, and l- hold it up to a lens of rationality, but also just reasonability, workability, what's helpful, what's needed. Uh, And it just creates a lot more flexibility for all of us.
1: Yeah. And that's what ACT is all about, acceptance and commitment therapy. How do I learn different responses to my thoughts and feelings? How do I respond flexibly to my emotions? There's so many different ways we can respond to emotions. Often it's escape. How do I get rid of this? It does not feel good. And, and getting rid of it feels as though you've solved problems. But if you've you know, done drugs or, or drank alcohol or accommodated or escaped or didn't meet, do things that were important to you, you've solved the problem of the feeling and not the problem of, of, um, of I guess, not the problem that you really want to solve, which is how do I live a meaningful life? How do I do the things that are important to me? Um, so yeah, it's and I think most people never have these conversations with themselves. it's 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 so therapeutic to just learn to have that self-awareness of what matters to me and how do I take all these inputs and then ensure that at the end of the day, the values are driving the bus.
0: And it's contempl- and making the decision. It's a contemplative practice, I think, You know many traditions have embedded in it you know we have we try to do that in in the secular world of new years of having resolutions it never works because people say at once never review their values and never study them and and look at them and remind themselves and so this year i took for myself um based on the jewish new year rosh hashanah that i was going to whatever i was clear about at that moment i was going to have an alarm going off on a weekly basis to review I think we have to start to hopefully spend more time reviewing what really really matters to us so that it can most likely creep into the moment when we're charged if we just have a conviction one time to do one thing better and we don't remember and review it then we're not going to stand a chance when the appeal of the emotions and the appeal of whatever desires come up uh, get to us it's we have to review and internalize so that when we have more, then we have more choice when it comes up. And I always think about the choice point, of course, where you have the situation, the thoughts and the feelings, all the things we can't control. And then where do we want to go and react to, to that? And where we take, where we take that, that's where the values I think come in.
1: A lot of the time resolutions too are more outcomes and they're not values. And a lot of the outcomes that we're hoping to achieve are really difficult things that take a lot of perseverance. They take a long time. And then when we experience the emotion of hopelessness or failure or self doubt, um, because we are not meeting the outcome that we set out in our resolution, you know, I'm not going to eat chocolate mm-hmm. for a month. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to do this. I'm never going to yell at my kids. I'm, you know, it's like, oh, I'm failing. I'm fa- like, failure will come up. Self doubt will come up. And then if we're not aware of the value behind why we want to do that and that regardless of outcomes, we continue to try to live towards our values, it's so easy to give up on resolution.
0: So it's really setting process or all of this is about what is our choice, what is not, living with their values and making decisions that are process oriented that aren't always outcome. And it's not that we shouldn't have outcome goals. Of course, course. we can can have outcome goals, but it's more about. I want to be a healthier person. So I'm going to plan to work out two to three times a week. That's a process. That's not saying I'm going to get somewhere. I'm going to lose this much weight. I'm going to feel this way about it. It's just, I'm going to do what's right and let's see where that takes me. And hopefully it will take me to a better place than it is now.
1: Yeah. What would it look like if I was working, living towards that value, right? Yeah. To be a healthier person. And it would look like I'd exercise, you know, Mm three times a week that makes it specific. That's like sort of, you know, key progress indicators. If you get into the business realm of things, I have to listen. I listen to a lot of business podcasts with my husband. What would it look like if I was to be meeting that goal for myself? Right. So it's okay to be, to be uh, specific and concrete and and all of that, but we have to know the value behind it and we we have to, we can hold that in our mind. Yeah.
0: And we should, uh, the last thing I want to say about that is just that um, we should take seriously our personal lives the way that we do our business lives. If we have, we do lots of consultation Absolutely. and meetings and we do, we read books and we do put, put it also put some of that investment into what really matters to you. Is there anything else that you want to tell the audience before we finish up?
1: I don't think so. This has been a great discussion. I think we've covered a lot of really important stuff.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Katie, for, for coming on and for talking to us about values. And, and we hope to, to talk much more about this topic and maybe come away with some opportunities or an exercise uh, or exercises that people can do to, to start to internalize these important parts of their life. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And of course, a disclaimer, this podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy.
1: Please seek professional help if needed. Go to v's.ca to get the support you need.
0: And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter.
1: And of course, come check us out at www.resolve—that's resolve resolve with two V's.ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till next next time, time, take take care. care.
0: The theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street.